rather than sitting back and waiting on big bets to work, what I try to help build a culture of is that everyone is responsible for collective destiny and that everyone has an ability, if properly mobilized, to make some difference. That's Josh McManus. He's the curator of Little Things, an independent innovation laboratory. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Since 2009, NEA Chairman Rocco Landisman has fostered a robust national conversation about the concept of creative placemaking. In its simplest form, creative placemaking recognizes the significance of the arts in shaping the social, physical, and economic characters of communities. But placemaking can't work without creative people. And in turn, those people need to connect, not just to each other, but to places they can invest in and work that they're passionate about. Enter Josh McManus and Little Things Laboratories. Josh has a track record of identifying emerging opportunities in mid-sized and post-industrial cities. He's developed successful projects that focus on place-based talent retention, bringing together people to generate new ideas about business, entrepreneurship, and uses of existing infrastructure. I jumped at the chance to speak with Josh McManus during one of his trips to Washington, D.C., and I began our conversation perhaps with the obvious. What is an innovation laboratory? <laughs> well, an innovation laboratory is an external space where we investigate problems for partners who are interested in social, economic, and cultural issues. So we're basically problem solvers. And you're problem solvers for cities, correct? For cities, usually our client is not the city. It's uh, someone who cares deeply about the city, private family foundations, larger nonprofit organizations, uh, and sometimes for-profit corporations even. The name of your company... Yeah, it's Little Things Labs. And that really displays your philosophy, doesn't it? It, it does. It does. It comes from a couple of serendipitous moments uh, in my life. One was from a letter that my grandfather wrote to my brother and I when we were 11 and 8, respectively. And in that letter that he's writing to two children, but treating us like adults, he said, sometimes the little things you do in life turn out to be the really big things. And... Some 20 years later, when I was building a uh, cultural organization in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, we would go out and meet with the leaders of the community, and they all wanted to know what's the next big thing for the city. And we finally came across this idea that the next big thing was a million little things. And so we sort of proved that out over the following five years, and it's become integral to our philosophy of change. Well, I want you to actually talk about that in a little bit more detail mm -hmm. and how that actually manifests itself in a city like Chattanooga, sure. where you were the co-founder of Create Here, which mm -hmm. I think preceded Little Things Lab. It did. It okay. did. So Create Here was a five-year project in uh, talent retention, attraction, uh, economic, cultural, and social engagement. It was really uh, an experiment between my co-founder and I uh, with the incredible support of a private family foundation named the Lyndhurst Foundation to see what we could do to answer some questions about loss of talent, of establishing a foothold in the creative economy, and genuinely increasing the vibrancy of, of place. 
And we attack that work using a number of little ideas. So, for example, when we met with a couple hundred individual artists, artisans, and genuinely creative people, they were expressing the need for money. But as we listened to that need for money, more times than not, it came from a lack of business acumen, business skill. And so one of the first projects that we created was an eight-week business planning class for artists, artisans, and what we call creative entrepreneurs, which was a catch-all for everyone else. Programs now graduated north of 500 people and has replicated itself in several other cities. But what's come from that is these individuals who have unlocked their individual potential. And we see them create more than we could have ever imagined more than we could have ever done for the small amount of money invested in their educational process. And we see them start to develop a whole system of economic development, which is, which means they create opportunity for other people rather than us sort of getting to the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, which is where I spent the first 10 years of my career trying to shove people up from basic needs into some level of uh, individual actualization. Your background is with the United Way. 19 years old. I started as an administrative assistant at the United Way. And you you ended up working for the national office. I did. I, I worked my way up in the system at a young age. If you know how to ask for money, it, it's a system you move, move up in pretty quickly. And so I left the system as a vice president when I was 26 years old. And uh, that's a $4 billion a year entity, so cut my teeth there and have tremendous respect for what that organization has done over time, but also saw a gravitation away from that type giving by my generation. And I had deep concerns about the ability to make change when we were dealing with basic needs, even though their model has pulled some in new directions, still a lot of emphasis on basic community needs. So what was the takeaway for you from the United Way? There's a lot of takeaways. I think the biggest would be that there's incredible power in pooling resources to make a difference, Mm. but that when layered with too much bureaucracy, that that funding can become just as demobilized. So third sector funding, if if you consider that the nonprofit world, can become just as demobilized as second sector or government when bureaucracy is layered in or, or too much measuring outcomes, all the things that you think would increase the productivity of the dollars, but in fact actually begin to kill creativity and therefore uh, lead to very unproductive uses of money. So you took what you learned over those years at United Way. What made you decide you really had a passion for a more down-home community organizing where you were activating people? Well, it was a unique and unintentional convergence. And so I guess I should add into the story. I, I ended up getting two business degrees, undergraduate and graduate degrees, while I was at United Way. So sort of working full-time and going to school, my professors were very good to me in that they let me sort of customize my education around the business of the nonprofit world. And so um, I ended up being kind of a strange beast from an educational standpoint. And then I had this upbringing where my father was a CEO and my mother was an artist, and I met an artist who I partnered up with on Create Here. She was classically trained uh, BFA painting and drawing. And that's Helen Johnson. Yeah, that's Helen Johnson. And we intersected our two skill sets 
to explore that friction and opportunity that exists between the creative and economic realms. Well, and Create Here, is it fair to say, is kind of a template for Little Things Lab? Yeah, Create Here informed what could happen at the local community level and how we ended up working at the local community level, whereas I had been all the way up to a national organization with the United Way system, is the just the frustration that I felt, I think Helen felt, that a number of people in our age group who are bumping up against a, a gray ceiling right now and who are seeing communities not change, not become the type places that, that we wanted to live. And so instead of just sitting back and complaining about it, we decided that we wanted to do something. And the easiest place to get a foothold and actually do something was in a city where there were not a lot of other people in our age group raising their hands saying, we want to do something. And so we became translators between an existing leadership class and existing pools of resources and an emerging class that was waiting to be called to action. And how did you call them to action? In a million ways. So um, tons of animation. We started with events that were unexpected. So we would put people together in an abandoned church with local food, local music. And usually there was an uh, what we called edutainment component to it. We were teaching them something. Maybe by getting you to show up at a graphic design show in the south side of the city, it was a, a gentle reminder that it was a safe enough place to be and that it was a neighborhood that was worthy of additional investment. Or getting you to come to a sculptor's house to a Halloween party, that art that costs $350,000 for a single piece was still approachable and that the people who produce it are actually approachable. And so we looked for those unique intersections to bring uh, a group of people who had the inclination, but m not necessarily the formal training or the interest in the traditional arts world. We sort of brought them in through a backdoor induction mechanism. And then when we'd listen quite a bit to say, what do you need? And that's where so many of our programs came from uh, in that the, the small grants for individual creativity, the business classes, what became a whole host of entrepreneurial services, our work in creating gallery space until that market corrected itself, even to the point of planting trees and doing community visioning process. It was listening to what our peers wanted and trying to help deliver that. Isn't that what STAND was or yeah. is? Explain yeah. explain STAND and the concept so of that. STAND was the world's largest community visioning survey, and it was uh, four questions that we asked people about the future of the city. We had 26,263 responses to that, and Chattanooga had a long history of public community visioning. The last one had been done more than 25 years before, and it was updated about seven or eight years after that. But we were overdue to start talking about what was next for the community. The physical infrastructure of the community had been revitalized, and I think there was a lot of human capital questions. And so we used that survey to start conversations that seem to be going on till this day about things like public education, safety, crime, jobs, and specifically job equity. But it was one more vehicle for the youth to think about their future, to sort of take control of their own destiny and to begin to engage with a post-industrial place that, that they were starting to care very deeply about. And are all your projects pretty much directed at youth? 
we certainly don't have a bias. Um, my work doesn't have a bias against um, different age groups. In fact, my best decisions have been made because of intergenerational knowledge transfer, and that's something that Helen and I both share. We've, we've had lots of wise counsel from incredible people. But we learned something that I think um, the example I like to use is American Honda Motor Corporation. I bought one of the first Honda Elements that they released in the United States, and they designed that for a driver that, if I remember right, was uh, supposed to be on average 23 to 25 years old. And when you now look at the demographics of who bought those cars, I think it ended up being more like 55 years old. And so we found that the boomers would trend down when you market to younger folks, but if you exclusively market to the boomers, the younger folks won't trend up. And so we aim from a graphic design aesthetic to the you know, 18 to 35 year olds, but uh, we saw incredible diversity. If you look at the participation in the stand survey, it almost uh, identically mirrored the last census tract. So we had representation from across all ethnicities and, and age groups. So how did you process all that information that you got from STAND? Yeah, it, that was a great example of collaboration and just finding what you had available at home. So there was a, a thing called the, there is a thing called the Center for Applied Social Research at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. And then another organization called the Ox Center for Metropolitan Studies. And so the CASR hired a bunch of students to take these handwritten forms, and 80% of those came in paper, uh, which was interesting in a digital world. So they turned that paper into digital feedback, and then the Ox Center developed a coding rubric so that you could turn this sort of subjective feedback into something that had uh, mathematical associations with it. And then we gave the entire data set back to the community so that other folks could use it to, to their advantage. You built Create Here with a five-year lifespan. Why? You know, it goes back to growing up in the United Way system. I saw too many institutions that were sort of chasing their own relevance. Their, their, their capital raises were way more about preserving people's jobs than about ending particular social conditions. And we also had wise counsel of my adopted grandmother, Maybelle Hurley, who was kind of the godmother of the Chattanooga's renaissance. And she talked about an original visioning project in Chattanooga that had a great five-year run and then over time was not as needed as it had been in the past. And so uh, pairing those two things together, we decided to plan our own obsolescence and that it, it, we felt like five years was enough time to do as much work as possible and then it would be our time to get out of the way. And instead of calling it a sunset, we called it a supernova because we studied supernovas and, and they have this amazing ability to create either black holes or, or new stars and galaxies. And we knew that we had done so much, had created so much activity over a short period of time that we could leave a gaping hole of engagement or we could create new stars and galaxies. And the fact that we shut down in the next day a ton of projects that had rolled out of us that were powered by those Lead Here fellows came back online. I think 19 projects in some way, shape, or form came back online. We deemed it an incredible success, and we were able to, at that time, because we had not held our own intellectual property sacred, 
see the things that were not necessary or not working well go away. We eliminated the infrastructure or the, or the major cost of the initiative. One thing, I'm getting this from your website, so mm-hmm. this is true confessions, but one thing that you said you were really, really proud of with the Create Here program is the Lead Here Fellowship program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about that and why you felt that had particular significance. Sure. Well, the lasting impact of Create Here will in small part be the the businesses formed, the trees planted, the grants made, the places that are better than than we found them. But the the biggest part of the impacts and when I go back to Chattanooga in 20 years and look at it and determine whether my 5 years of work was successful uh, will be whether we created a next generation of leadership. And so we had Nearly 100 young people, 18 to 22 years old, typically come to us and work sometimes for free, sometimes 8 to $10 an hour. You know, it's sort of like a Peace Corps for your city to where you work for small amounts of money. You work very hard. You build an incredible portfolio. We now got 23-year-olds that have done the world's largest community visioning process or 27, 28-year-olds who've helped create 500 small enterprises. So they've now got credentials that exceed people that have had careers that last much longer than theirs. But the change that I expect, and I I am seeing them create in the city now, that's the real outcome. The work was to create the next generation of leadership, and, and that was learned from looking 30 years before at what had happened in Chattanooga when the city started to turn itself around. There were great projects that happened. There was This is in the 1980s. Yeah, late 70s, early 80s. There was an aquarium. There was streetscaping. There's a river walk. There were all these projects that are now looked at as the turning points of the city, but if you trace them back, they all came from a network of individuals that came together to to solve problems, and then that network functioned well for the entire career of the involved individual. So you've got 30 years of good decisions that happened based upon these formative moments, these problem-solving sessions that happened side-by-side in the late 70s and early 80s. So we wanted to put a a group of 18 to 25-year-olds in that same situation. So in 2025 there'll be somebody that picks up a phone and says hey you remember when we did that community visioning process together well now we need to you know eradicate poverty from our community and it's time and we know each other and we trust each other and we respect each other and so that's the head fake of the work to me was it it was about indoctrinating a group of people into the history and challenging them to be a part of determining the future from there, you went on to form Little Things Lab. Yeah. And let's talk about some of the projects that you're doing now with Little Things. And one of them is DeHive. Yeah. So what was interesting is we didn't have a, a national platform, but we kept getting called by interesting people like Carol Coletta, who was at CEOs for Cities. And now she's at Art Place and, and asked to talk about our work. And every time we'd go talk about our work, people would say, oh, you know, we, we need to have you to our city. And we didn't do anything with that for the first four and a half years. But once we got to a point that we were confident and comfortable in the progress in, in Chattanooga, we did go start sharing with other cities. And 
Detroit uh, was one of the first cities to invite us to visit. Uh, Cincinnati followed pretty quickly. And they just wanted to transfer information. So we have lots of energy. We have lots of people in your age group. Uh, we haven't had a similar platform for them to use. And so I was asked by the Hudson Weber Foundation in Detroit to look at a problem that they were having, which was fascinating, one that most post-industrial cities don't have, which is we called people to come to the city. We created this initiative called 15 by 15, which is 15,000 bright, innovative, college-educated, entrepreneurial people coming to our city by the year 2015. And now they're actually Wait, showing 25 up. 250 or 21.5? 21.5. Okay. And then they found that the people were actually showing up. What was perplexing is that foundations you know, aren't really equipped to help people find apartments. Um, and so... What we've done with the Dehive is built, uh, physically built, a, a front door for living, working, and engaging in the city right in the heart of downtown Detroit. And so now people are walking in and asking for help on where do I live, uh, how do I get connected to a job, what social networks should I plug into, how can I be a part of the, the huge work of bringing Detroit to its next place in its development. And so that's been an amazing project with an ambition on my part of hopefully helping to bring tens of thousands of new people into the urban core because uh, there's plenty of room for them. And new people always bring fresh ideas and, and a friction that influences community improvement, which um, that friction is something that is necessary and healthy in a place like Detroit. And affordable housing, <laughs> which it also has. Now, here's the question I have for you. You developed Create Here in Chattanooga, a city in which you were living. Mm -hmm. What's the particular challenges of being called to another city where you're not a resident? Sure. It's unique, but uh, I, I love the position that I'm in now because I get to go search for the people that remind me of me, the sort of agitated and enterprising and doggedly determined individuals who are going to make change in the place that they are. And then in this sort of translator's role that I end up in, I get to help uh, folks that are concerned about their place identify those people, and, and I encourage them to invest in those individuals. Uh, you know, I was very lucky, incredibly lucky, that this foundation led by a leader who had been at the helm for 30 years, who had made unprecedented change in a post-industrial city, if you look at it dollar for dollar. That board and that leader invested not quite, but nearly $5 million over five years in our work. And that type of resource is transformative in both the ability to make change and the the sort of teaching everything that, that you can learn because you're working at such a, a, a pace so now I take it on not as I need to be the guy at the epicenter of change in the communities that I work in but I need to help identify those folks and help them build tools that uh, enhance their work rather than hinder their work because cash can be crippling to these entrepreneurial, cultural uh, activities, if not managed correctly. So how did you find people like you? It's funny. It's the Kevin Bacon six degrees of separation thing. So if you'll just sit down and start having a conversation with someone and tell them what you've done in the past, and 
uh, I've always been bashful about self-promotion, but I've now had to create a bio, and so I, I, I end up using the bio quite a bit. But if I slide that bio or have a conversation with somebody, they invariably go, oh, you need to meet this person. And then I go to that person, they say, oh, you need to meet this person. And so within a matter of a few conversations, you can find the people that are the epicenter of change in a given community that have the energy for it, that have the ideas and that are willing to invest their own time in making things happen. It's amazing in cities, you know, the Detroit metropolitan area has 5 million people in it, but it, it took 300 interviews before being able to identify an incredible network of people uh, oriented to change. You wrote that life is not a game of Hail Mary passes and good community is not built from stadiums and skyscrapers. I want you to say a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, the cities that I go to all too often that have abandoned their hope for change uh, have always oriented their change to both big vision and big projects. And what I've learned over time is you have to have big vision and small projects. So tons of small individual uh, interventions that add up to this shared value set that is the larger vision for the community. And having come of age in, in Chattanooga, a place that did make that turn. And I mean, the, the numbers are behind it. Chattanooga is the one post-industrial city over 100,000 that lost population 70s, 80s, regained it over the 90s and 2000s. They really are the comeback kid. It was because there was this commonly held vision, this belief that a rising tide would lift all boats, that there was a belief in a culture of abundance, even when resources were fairly scarce, if you look at it, if you look at the sort of balance sheet that goes alongside of it. But what what came from that shared value set was everyone taking on the project that they could handle. And so the billionaire Jack Lupton, his project might be a $45 million aquarium, but the doctor who set out to make sure that uh, polluted air in the valley was eradicated mattered just as much as Mr. Lupton. It was everyone doing what was in their ability. And so rather than sitting back and waiting on big bets to work, what I try to help build a culture of is that everyone is responsible for collective destiny and that everyone has an ability, if properly mobilized, to make some difference. Okay, Josh McManus, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Josh McManus. He's the curator of Little Things, an independent innovation laboratory. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from For Eric, Piano Study. From the album Metascapes, composed and performed by Todd Barton, used courtesy of Valley Productions. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link in our podcast page. Next week, founder of Imagination Stage, Bonnie Fogel. She talks about theater, creativity, and children. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.